Well, it's a joy to be with you this morning. I've been here at your church in the past, uh, but it's been a number of years and uh, wonderful to be back with you again. I actually do recognize a few faces here from when I've been here before, particularly those two right there. Uh, Bill and Retta have been dear friends for a long time, and it's just uh, great to see how the Lord has continued to prosper the ministry of this church taking all of us through COVID and uh, now beginning to feel a bit more normal again. It's uh, really, really good to be here. Also, wonderful to be with uh, the Waters, Steve and Candace, who are up front here and back at the booth, their True 78 booth. They'll be there after the service. Um, I, I have loved and so appreciated the ministry of what was Children Desiring God, then became a few years ago, True 78, 78 taken from Psalm 78, in case you're wondering where that came from, not 1978, that wasn't the idea, uh, Psalm 78, uh, a wonderful ministry providing such great resources for churches. Uh, I wish more of them took advantage of them. Yours is, praise be to God, uh, but uh, I wish more did, but boy, my goodness, just really helpful for both parents and for Sunday school teachers and for churches to help equip the next generation. It matters, doesn't it? I mean, you just think, what would happen if they're not equipped in light of what's taking place in the world we live in today? Confusion? Yes. Deception. I think that word is even stronger, isn't it? Deception is prevalent. So may we help our children and the young people of our church grow to know the truth that will guide them through the maze of the culture we live in. Well, this morning, we're going to be in Psalm 78, as you were last week. Uh, Pastor Todd preached there and uh, walked you through the psalm. I'm going to be focusing this morning on just one verse, uh, and that is verse 7. So look at it with me. And and by the way, there is a handout for this. I don't know if you picked it up on the way in, but uh, there's a handout to follow along through the message this morning. In in verse 7, we hear that the, the psalmist is calling for this next generation, that they should, now this is the New American Standard translation, they should put their confidence in God. The ESV states it as set their hope in God and not forget the, work of, the works of God, but keep his commandments. So there are three things I want us to see in this verse And really, the exposition part of this sermon is going to be relatively short. I I think of this particular sermon as kind of flipping a normal sermon on its head. Uh, It's going to be about 20% exposition, 80% application, and of course, a normal sermon is the other way around. But uh, we're going to spend a little time doing the exposition and then then work this out in application for both our lives as Christians. Christian young people and adults, but also how we can apply this to our children. But we start here in this verse. Notice that he says that they should put their confidence or set their hope in God. And I would argue that what he's talking about here relates to the part of us that we usually would call or should call the affections, the affections, which is different than emotions. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, in his treatise on the religious affections, makes it very clear that emotions are different from affections. Emotions are fickle. 
Uh, they're easily changeable. You can have your emotions affected by somebody coming up and saying something either sweet or something kind of bitter to you, right? And either way, your emotions can get affected just instantly. You can wake up in the morning and see it's sunny and be lifted in your spirits or see it's raining again today and, and your spirits are, are uh, a little bit depleted. Emotions are fickle and easily changeable and are circumstantially related. Circumstances affect emotions. Affections, on the other hand, are resilient. They're stubborn. They're hard to change. Hence, you'll see this in a minute here, how hard sanctification is, because sanctification, our growth in Christ-likeness and growth in holiness, requires that our affections change, and that's hard work. But affections are stubborn. They, they really are the fec- affections are the deepest set values that we have as individual people. What we love or hate what we cherish or despise, what we live for, what we would die for, and what we don't care about, right? That's, that's affections. So let me, let me give you an illustration here of the difference between emotions and affections. Suppose on a given Sunday morning, uh, the, the people who were to serve the two to four-year-olds, uh, only one person showed up of the four or five that were supposed to be there. And so this one dear woman had 30 of these two to four-year-olds all by herself, and the preacher preached long. Of course, that never happens here, right? But the preacher preached long, and so she had these for like an hour and a half, all these kids. At the end of that time, her emotions were frayed. She was so glad that the parents were coming back to pick up their kids. And one of the parents said to her, well, I bet you're glad that we're here to get them. And she said, I am, I am. And so then he followed up and said, so you really don't care about those kids, do you? How dare you say that? Do you see the difference? affections. Oh, she loves those kids. She would do anything for those kids. If the parents didn't show up, well, she would just buck up and keep at it with them, right? Affections, but emotions can be frayed. So affections are what cause us to hope in something, to put our confidence in something, right? To believe in something, to believe this is where truth is, this is what matters, this is how we should live. That's affections. Okay, so verse 7 begins with that they should put their confidence in God or set their hope in God. Now notice, and not forget the works of God. Now, what does that phrase focus on? What part of us does that focus on? What, what is the not remembering part of us? Or not, not for, I'm sorry, the not forgetting part of us. That's our minds, isn't it, right? That's our minds that we not forget the works of God. We need to remember these things. We need to know these things. We need to have this firmly planted in our thinking. We need to bring this to mind regularly and not forget So notice the logical connection here, even though he mentions affections first, and I think there's a reason for that. I'll come back to that in just a moment. He mentions the affections first, put their hope in God, set their confidence in God. That's affections, right? But based upon what? Knowledge, right? Remembering, knowing the works of God. And you could add 
to the, the works that he mentions there, the words of God. Go back to verse 1 of Psalm 78. Listen, my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. So obviously, words and works go together. The words of God oftentimes explain the works of God, right? So, so we realize, boy, God wants us to know truth that he's revealed about himself. He wants us to see the works that he has done. In Psalm 78, you know this from last week, that the works of God really refer to the multitude of ways that God has shown his kindness and his provision and his protection, his, his mercy, his generosity to the people of Israel, his own people, even though they repeatedly turned away from him. Yet he would come back to them. He does not give up on his people. So the kindness of God, the works of God to deliver them once again, to provide for them once again, even though they are undeserving people. The works of God, the words of God to instruct them, to give them truth by which they can prosper and thrive and flourish as his, his own people. So he wants them to know these. Don't forget the works of God. We can add here, verse 1, the words of God, so that your hope will be set on God. You see it? So what is in our heads informs our hearts. The logical order, even though what we have in our hearts is really what he's getting at, what we have in our hearts, our affections, are informed by what we know in our heads. You see it? Okay, then, the end of verse 7, but keep his commandments. What part of that does that refer to in us? It's our volition, isn't it? It's our will to choose to obey, our will to choose to follow, our will to say yes to God and no to the world. Yes to his ways, no to anything else that is contrary to his ways right? To keep the commandments of God. This is not here or anywhere else in the Bible calling for a kind of, uh, what shall we say, Uh, an obedience that is just forced, coerced. Okay, like, 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 uh, like little Johnny who's made to stop running around the room. I, I, I may be standing in a corner on the outside, but I'm still running around the room on the inside, he says, right? So it's not that kind of obedience, forced obedience. This, this is the obedience that God calls his people to where they recognize, yes, given what I know of God, given the affections of my heart and how I long to keep his word, I do what I long most to do. It's an obedience that comes out of a heart based upon a mind that knows and wants to follow the ways of God. So notice this one verse gives us kind of an order here. Even though the order of the verse is affections, heart, uh, not forgetting, mind, head, and then finally hands, the obedience, the acting out in hands, yet the, the logical order is head, heart, hands. Do you see it? What I know of God and his ways and his works informs setting my hope on him, informs my heart, that then results in 
affections. I'm sorry, that results in actions and behavior that, that is the expression of what I love, what I am committed to, what I cherish, what I want to live out. Head, heart, hands. And there is an order to this. Notice the role of the head and the heart and the hands then affect the habitat. Okay, just to keep the H's going here, the alliteration. Head, heart, hands, habitat, meaning the environment around you. How how will you affect the next generation most forcefully, most uh, thoroughly as you live out what you know and have come to believe with all of your heart and are living out authentically with integrity, with fervor and passion, you live that out, guess what happens? Those around you are affected by that. They see it's the real deal. They understand you really mean this. This isn't just words to say at the right time uh, when other people are around. This is you. This is who you are. You, you know these things. You love these things. You, you have embraced these things, and now you live these things, and others see it and are affected by it. So indeed, the order here is crucial. If you have your hand out, I've got these little arrows, right? The order is crucial. The head starts first. Head then leads to heart, then leads to hands, then leads to affecting the habitat. So knowing the truth should lead to loving the truth, affections, which should lead then to living the truth, which should lead then to transforming others through that truth. Head, heart, hands, habitat, knowing the truth, loving the truth, living the truth, transforming others as we live it out with integrity, with authenticity, with, with joy, and with passion. Here's another way to put this idea uh, that I think is, is uh, implied in verse 7 that we have here in Psalm 78. God intends his truth, the truth that he gives to us, to travel. Traveling truth. Isn't that kind of an interesting idea? Traveling truth. You've heard of a traveling circus. Well, that's not this. This is traveling truth. God intends the truth that he gives us to travel first into our heads, from our heads then into our hearts, from our hearts to our hands in action, in behavior, and then finally the habitat is affected by it. Now, that's not to say there are not times when there's kind of a reciprocal relationship in how that truth travels. So, for example, your affections, as they're touched by truth, can give you a desire to want to know more about that. So you read more books. You you study harder. You start looking in the Bible further at other passages. So you grow in your understanding because your heart has been inflamed by it. So, indeed, there can be a reciprocal... Or, for example, you start practicing something, you see the good of it, and so that leads you to want to know more about why that is so good. So there can be that kind of activity as well. But the fundamental direction, 
that truth travels as God has designed it is first to our heads, then to our hearts, then to our hands, and then affecting the world around us. You know, I I remember hearing a Bible teacher when I was young, I won't say his name just because what I'm about to say about him I don't agree with, so so I won't say his name, but a a very prominent Bible teacher back when I was a young, young boy growing up, and he did a series that he did in many, many churches in different parts of the country uh, entitled Right Living, Right Living. And what, what he argued in this was right knowing, knowing the truth results in right living. And I remember at the time thinking to myself, you know, I'm not convinced that's true. I mean, I was just a boy, but I, I started thinking about this, you know, Right knowing, knowing the, the, the truth leads to doing the truth because I knew people in my own church who I thought were very knowledgeable about the truth of God's word, and yet I didn't see in the way they lived that it seemed to emphasize that. It seemed to me that they were more interested in other things rather than things of the Bible, th- things of God. And so I, I just had this question in my mind, uh, even as many people were excited about what he was teaching, I'm not sure if that's true. Years later, I read Jonathan Edwards, The Religious Affections, and I realized what the problem was. It is not the case that knowing the truth necessarily results in living the truth. It is rather the case that knowing the truth, when you then love the truth, leads then more often, more naturally to living the truth. We don't necessarily do what we know, but we do do more often what we love. Do you see it? Ask any addict if they, if they know better. Oh yeah, they know better. They know this is harmful, but they love it too much, right? So they don't give it up. We do what we love So, isn't it clear that so much of our sanctification depends on changing our loves so that we love what God loves, we we love what we ought to love, we hate what we ought to hate, We, we grow in our affections, but how do our affections grow? Through knowing the truth that informs our affections. Do you see it? So, the knowledge of the truth has to be there first. For, for the soil to be put in place, that knowledge becomes the soil out of which affections are formed as the Spirit helps us, hear this, as the Spirit helps us see not only the truth of the truth, which is itself a big deal. I mean, think of the culture we live in. How many people think the truth is what they believe and we know it's false? So to see the truth as the truth is a huge step forward, but that's not the end of it. Not only to see the truth as the truth, but to see the truth as beautiful, the truth as wise, the truth as glorious. That's when our affections are changed. I I remember hearing a story. I taught at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School uh, north of Chicago for a number of years before coming to Southern Seminary, where I now have been. I'm in my 25th year at Southern. 
uh, and I praise the Lord for the, just uh, the privilege it's been to teach on the faculty at Southern all these years. But I was at Trinity before this. Uh, one of my colleagues there is, a, is a, uh, a man you probably have heard of, Don Carson. Perhaps he's been here at Grace, I don't know, but he's a, a, v- a very fine New Testament scholar. Well, I heard this story about Don. He, he was commuting into campus with another colleague, a, a faculty member at Trinity, who was an egalitarian on the role of women issue. An egalitarian holds the view that there's no distinction between men and women and as it relates to ministry. Uh, women could, can be ordained to the pastor, can be pastors of churches, and he was all in favor of this. And Don Carson was a complementarian. A complementarian holds that that men and women are equal in their nature. They're both equally human, but there's differences that God has ordained in terms of roles that they carry out, and only men can be, are qualified to be pastors and so on. Okay, so, so here Don is in the car with this egalitarian riding into campus and back out every day, uh, and he thinks to himself, I think I'm going to take advantage of this time to inform my brother of the better way. And so on those drives in, can you if you know who Don Carson is, you just think of the acumen that he brings to bear on this. On the way into to, to campus and back, he's telling this, this brother why the Bible teaches, or that, that the Bible teaches the complementarian view and that he ought to hold this because it's the biblical view. Well, after a few weeks, this has been going on, and one day Don stops to pick him up, he gets in the car, and the first thing he says to Don is, okay, Don, you don't need to give me a lecture today. I now have come to see, and I believe with you, that the complementarian view is what the Bible teaches. But I don't like it. <laughs> to which then Don Carson responded, well then, we've come halfway. Do you see it? What's the halfway point? You know the truth as truth but do you see it yet as beautiful, as wise, as good, as glorious? That's what we need. I think many people coming to the doctrines of grace have this same struggle, don't they? Oh, yeah, I see election is taught in the Bible, but I don't like it. Well, you've come halfway. That's a big accomplishment right there. That's a big accomplishment. But boy, then to see it as wise and good and glorious, right? So many things in the Christian life are in this category. Okay, so the order of the truth matters. Head to heart to hands to habitat. All right, now, application. We're already to the application of the sermon. How about that? So I want to just walk through these four areas with you, the the head, heart, hands, habitat, and think with you in particular about how we can assist children and it applies to every one of us, though. I mean, you, you can take children out of the equation and just go through this very same thing. It applies to every one of us, but in particular, how it applies to children and helping them grow in their head knowledge of the Word of God, their heart, their heart embrace, the affections, their hands application, and then the effect that could have on those around them. So, Roman numeral two, the progression and possession of God's truth, head, heart, hands, Habitat. First of all, the head. Start with the priority of learning well the truth of God's word. The mind's understanding, knowing the truth, is necessary for the heart's engagement with that truth, loving the truth. Now, we want to get to loving the truth. We want to get there. We want to get to the, to the affections. We want to get to the beginning of verse 7, that they should put their hope in God. Amen. We want that, but how do you get there? 
through their heads, knowledge of God, their knowledge of his word, knowledge of his works. They have to have that, right? So we start with the priority of learning well the truth of God's word. Knowing the truth provides the possibility and basis for loving the truth. You know, Edwards, in that wonderful treatise on the religious affections, uses an analogy in that book, in in his treatise, uh, on this very point of of the difference between the knowledge of the truth and the, the inflamed affections of the truth. His illustration is of a fireplace. And it goes like this, that, that you can chalk the best quality wood there is into a fireplace, but that doesn't itself bring about a warming fire for your home. What has to happen? Well, that wood has to be ignited, right? But nor can you have a fire, a warming fire for your home, without wood in the fireplace. What's going to be ignited, right? So he likens the wood in the fireplace to the truth that we have in our minds, but then realizing the Holy Spirit must ignite that truth. The Holy Spirit must be at work to help us, our children, to see the beauty and the glory of that truth and and develop affections where we cherish that truth, love that truth. But we won't get anywhere without wood in the fireplace to start with, right? You have to have it. So, and he, he likens that wood to to the truth we put in, the more we have in there, the better quality, the greater hope there is of a raging fire to come. So I, I you know, I knew this when my little, my, my children were little growing up, and I thought of myself as filling the fireplace, you know, with, with our de- devotional time we'd have at the family table. Uh, we're, f- we're putting wood into the fireplace. Now, it's not ignited yet. I know it. But boy, there's wood ready to be, to be ignited later. I, I would think to myself, you know, and I, I spent time in the evenings uh, at their bedtime. I started doing this when they were pretty little. I, we have two girls, by the way, uh, and I'd spend 10 or 15 minutes, 20 minutes sometimes with each one uh, going, going through systematic theology. I mean, that's what I teach for a living, so I thought, my goodness, I love it so much. You know, it's just, it has changed my life so much to know these glorious truths on so many areas of, of biblical teaching uh, I want my girls to know this. So I started teaching them systematic theology when I think Rachel was four, maybe five, maybe five. Bethany was about eight years old. And just a little bit of time each night spending with them and just, you know, putting wood into that fireplace. And then in time, when they were saved, they were both saved pretty young, I saw the light go on. I saw fire beginning to emerge as they saw more of the wisdom and the beauty and so on of that. So, filling minds with, uh, with, with truth. So, bullet, I have three bullet points there. First bullet point, with children, the first priority and what we can assist them with is the head, knowing the truth. Since most young children are not saved, the heart is not ready to be touched fully. And even when saved, some maturity and reflection is needed to begin to sense the weightiness of that truth. But knowing the truth as fully and accurately as one can is crucial to all, all else. So, Bible memorization, oh my, how good that is. Fighter verses, Candace, do I hear an amen from you? She, she's the fighter verse queen up here in the front and uh, put, you know, d- does a lot of work with True 78 and getting those fighter verses out there. Uh, fighter verses, um, uh, 
a, a catechism for your kids is such a good thing to do. Bible, Bible reading with your children, uh, devotions at the table, times individually with them. Yes, on the way, but also special times in the Bible itself with them. So time spent putting knowledge into your kid's head uh, that, that can be ignited later. Oh my goodness, how important that is to do that. Secondly, second bullet point, children are curious by nature and have many questions. At least many of them are this way. Resist, resist the urge to squelch this curiosity and questioning due to not knowing the answers to them. Now, I have to tell you, I had wonderful parents, but my parents were not uh, well-educated people, and I remember, and I was a very curious boy growing up. I had tons of questions about so many things, including a lot of things in the Bible and theology. And uh, I would ask my parents, and, I, and you know, they would kind of shrug and look at me and, and not know what to say, you know, kind of, kind of change the subject. And honestly, that's not a good thing to do to a curious kid. But rather, if you don't know the answer, say, you know, Johnny, Susie, that's a great question. And I just have to tell you, I don't know the answer to that, but let's do some study and see if we can figure it out. If we can't, let's, let's talk to the pastor, see if he can help us with this, right? How much better to, to join them in their curiosity, in their excitement, and you learn with them than to shut it down. Just join them and, and uh, find how fun it is to explore and learn with them. Third, take them to the Bible so that they learn that the authority that you have and that they also should have is God's Word. Resist the urge to apply your parental authority and making them believe the truth. Help them even as young children to be like the Bereans who search the Scriptures to see if this be so. I think this is one of the drawbacks with some catechisms is you, they can give the impression that they're detached from the Bible, right? That it's kind of free-floating truth out there. And it isn't. It is not. So help, help them understand these truths that we're learning are from the Scriptures. When I went through systematic theology with my girls, I always started every night with a verse, I started with a verse because I wanted them to know that what we're talking about, whether it's, you know, an attribute of God or the Trinity or, or the substitutionary atonement, whatever it was, I wanted them to know that we're building this out of verses of the Bible so that they would know this is the source we go to and not just concepts that I, as your dad, tell you you should believe. Uh-uh, I want you to believe God, His Word, No. His word. Help your children learn it. Okay, so head, so what you can do to chalk their minds full of truth, you know, and uh, obviously in a manner that will be uh, exciting for them as much as you can do that. It's it's a, a great goal to have with young children. Secondly then, the heart eventually becomes the, the focal point. Move eventually to the level of heart embrace of the truth. The heart's engagement with the truth, loving the truth, is necessary for the hand's activity in applying that truth. So again, we have to remember, truth is traveling here. We want to get to the hands, but we don't get to the hands directly from the head. Remember that point I made earlier? It's not necessarily what we know that we practice, it's what we love what, what we cherish, that's what we are more inclined to do. So, 
The heart's engagement with the truth is necessary for the hand's activity in upholding, in applying that truth. So loving the truth provides the possibility and basis for living the truth. So here are just a few, few suggestions here. In time, the heart becomes the key issue. Not only do they know the truth, but do they feel the weight and sense the personal significance of that truth? Let me move right on to the second bullet point. Pray fervently that God would work in their hearts to help them see not only the truthfulness of the truth, but also the glory and the wonder and the beauty of that truth. Now, you pray all the way through. You pray for them to get the right knowledge. You pray for that too. But here is a point at which you realize your limitation as a parent or, or as a teacher or working with anybody else in a discipleship relationship. Here's the limitation. We cannot, we, we, we can force the issue of their knowing this, right? We, we can help explain it. We can explain it. We can try to clarify. We can force the issue of whether they know it or not. What we cannot do is force the issue of whether they will embrace it as their own. See the truth as truth and then see it as good, wise, glorious, and, and, and take it as their own and develop affections that are based upon that. This has to be the work of the Spirit, does it not? So it makes us, in any kind of discipleship relationship, it makes us as the disciplers dependent on the work of God to do what he alone can do and trust him to, to open the eyes, to see the, the glory of that and so be changed by it. Here is, I think, something helpful to keep in mind. Uh, I, I call it uh, uh, Thomas Chalmers' principle of the expulsive power of a new affection. Um, Thomas Chalmers was a Scottish politician turned pastor who then as a pastor preached many, many sermons, but the one that he is most famous for is a sermon with this, with this title, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And the main thesis of the sermon is basically this, that we will never in our own lives or with someone else um, come to the place where we turn away from things of this world, think things that are deceptive and misleading and wrong and sinful. We will never turn away from those things merely by coming to terms with how bad they are, how destructive they are, how harmful they are to our well-being. Because if that's all we do, we just say, oh, that crud out there is horrible, it'll destroy you, and we turn away from it, guess what happens? You've turned away from something that has been feeding you, has been satisfying to you in some, some way, and by pushing it out of your life, it leaves you with this emptiness inside that you don't like. So what will you do eventually? Go back to where you were before, to what you were taking in before, because you don't like being empty, Right? Instead, the expulsive power of a new affection, instead, he says, that the only way you can, you can successfully push out of your life the crud, the sin, the, the worldliness from your life is by filling your life with something better. So here, here's, I don't, I don't have 
a, a, a bottle, a glass up here, but just pretend. I've got a glass, right? And uh, suppose this glass is full of water. You know that there are two fundamental ways that you can remove water from a glass. The first one is by emptying the glass, and you can do that in a variety of different ways. You can pour it out. Uh, you could siphon it. Uh, you could drink it. Uh, you, you could let it evaporate. Eventually, it would be dry, right? So a number of different ways you can remove water from the glass by emptying the glass. Now, glasses, when they're empty, don't mind being empty, Right? I can testify to you that that's the case because we have a china cabinet in our dining room that has glasses in it on the high shelf that probably have not seen a drop of water for at least 35 years. <laughs> and you never walk by that, that china cabinet and hear those glasses crying out, fill me, fill me. They don't mind it. They don't mind being empty. But us, human beings, we're not that way. We mind it. When we're, not empty, when we're not full. So here's the other way that you can remove water from a glass. Glass is full. How can you re- remove water from it? By filling it with something, listen, weightier, denser, richer than water, right? Say liquid mercury. You fill the glass with liquid mercury. What happens to the water? It's expulsed by something that is weightier than the water that was in there. Do you see it? The expulsive power of a new affection. So indeed, my friends, help your children learn. Help all of us learn this principle from Thomas Chalmers that the best defense is a strong offense. I'm changing metaphors here. This is a sports metaphor, right? The best defense, or war metaphor, I suppose, the best defense is a strong offense where we we go after what is better. And as we do that and take into our life what is better that is in contrast with what was there before, what happens to what was there before? It goes. It has to go. Because better has come. I mean, don't you hear this in Philippians 3? The things which were gained to me, Paul says, and he lists a whole bunch of different things that were gained to him, you know, Hebrew, Hebrews, and so on. The things were gained to me, these things I consider as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I consider all things to be loss in view of, here it comes, the surpassing value, weightier, better, richer, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Ah. Ah. I just forgot how it goes from there. Um, Knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered, suffered the loss of all things and count them but dung, but rubbish that I may gain Christ. You hear it? So better than what I had before. That's the point. So indeed, help them learn this principle. You, re- you want life at its fullest? Listen to Jesus. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. My, the, I, I, I obey my commandments that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full indeed. The, the greatest, most joyous life is the life of Complete obedience to the will and the ways of God. If you don't believe it, look at Jesus himself. How did he live his life? 
in complete obedience. Uh, he, he said in John chapter 8, I do not speak on my own initiative. I speak as the Father tells me. The things that I do, I do as the Father tells me to do. This is Jesus. Complete obedience and the most fulfilling life possible. They go together. Third, moving on to hands. Kepler C. Move to the level of truth's effect on their hands, the application of God's word. The hands applying the truth, living the truth, is what makes possible the transformation of others in our cultural environment, uh, transformed by the truth. So how can this truth be lived out more consistently? First of all, first bullet point, help them with hands-on application of the truth that they learn and love. Help them think through various areas of their lives to see what these truths mean to how they live and relate to others. Don't assume they'll just get it. Get them started in thinking about how the truth of God's word needs to be lived out. So spend time, if we're talking about children, spend time with them to think through, think, enter their world. Think about their friends their siblings, their parents, perhaps you, uh, their relationships, their tasks, their responsibilities, clean your room, take out the garbage. Think of these various things and walk them through how their hands-on applying the truth of God's word leads to the ways in which they talk to their friends, the ways in which they interact with their siblings, right? so, so, So it isn't moralistic. It isn't, you know, just forcing them to behave the right way, helping them see the outworking of biblical truth is to speak with their sister, their brother, in kind ways. Ephesians, <laughs> I forget the reference. Let me look. Ephesians 4, 29 applies to children. What does it say? Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Huh. How about talking about that verse with your little, little boy, little girl, in how they talk to their friends, how they talk together in the family, how they talk to you. How about that? Right? Help them see if they are believers in Christ, how the Spirit grants them empowerment to change in the ways in which they talk, right? So work with your your kids to help them think through the implications and the applications of the truths that you go through with them, you know, filling their heads, their hearts are now embracing this. What does that mean in terms of how I live this out in my relationships and responsibilities. Second, avoid legalism and moralism by helping them see the gospel at work and how they live. Now, what I mean here is this. What I mentioned just a moment ago, help them see that it isn't in them to do it, right? They can't do it on their own. I can't do it on my own. How, how, how can I live a life that is pleasing to God only as God provides the empowerment in me? by his spirit, to live out the way I, I should live. Remember Paul, Paul's teaching in Romans 8, 3, and 4, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, that, that is, it could not make us law keepers. 
He could not make us keep what the law rightly demanded that we do. What the law could not do, weak as it was for the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, right? So spirit empowerment to do what God has provided. The gospel, by the way, is not only sins forgiven, it's also sins defeated, right? So help them see that trusting in Christ brings not only forgiveness from the guilt of, this, of their sin, but empowerment to overcome the, 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 the force of that sin that continues to abide within them. And so grow in living an obedient life by the power of the Spirit. Finally, Habitat. Then help them see, capital letter D, help them see the ways that they can be used by God in transformation of their habitat, their culture, their, their, their context in which they live, through their friendships and relationships as well as service that they can render. So two, two points that I want to make here that I think are helpful to think about. One is, do acts of service together but help them see how these are outworkings of the truths of God's word and empowered by the gospel. So encourage them to join you in your acts of service. You know, my dad, who's been with the Lord for many years now, uh, was a wonderful Christian man who grew up in a horrible home in Fort Valley, Georgia, near Macon, Georgia. His dad was an alcoholic. He, He cussed like a sailor, as they say, and he was, you know. But at 17 years old, the the Lord converted him. A man by the name of Hugh Hayes, traveling evangelist, came through. My dad heard the gospel. He was saved, and the Lord transformed his life. And uh, he pleaded with the Lord that God would make him know how to be a, a faithful Christian husband and father. And I know God answered that prayer. He was, he was an amazing dad. Well, one of his passions was older people in the church, so-called shut-ins. And so every Christmas, I, I just knew the day was going to come when I would hear these words, Bruce, we're going visiting. And I knew what that meant. I really wasn't excited about it because it meant the whole Saturday devoted to what? Well, he had gone to the florist, bought a whole bunch of poinsettia plants, filled up the back of the station wagon with it, and uh, we would travel to different homes and apartments and nursing homes and so on for the whole day and visit these dear folks. He, lo- he loved them so I mean, just the look on his face when they opened the door and we were singing Joy to the World or something like that, you know. It was priceless. I mean, I remember it with, with tears now, even though I didn't like it then. But he, he loved those people, and he gave, you know, gave them a flower, gave them a card. Uh, we would sit and talk with them and pray with them, and then we'd go to the next home and do the same. When I got a little bit older, he had, had me bring my trumpet with me. So just imagine a kid who doesn't play very well yet, play, you know, trying to play Joy to the World in an apartment. You know, anyway, you, you, you can picture the whole thing. So, but he just wanted me to participate with him in this, you know, that, that was his idea. So it, it worked. It, it just, it worked. It helped me see my dad's passion for ministry to people who needed help. He loved to do it, and he passed on to me something of that. I'm so grateful for that. But here's the second thing. Secondly, give them freedom to dream and envision how they can be used by God in service to his kingdom, which may be in different areas than you're gifted. 
So yeah, it's easier to pull them into your life because that's what you like to do. It's harder to say, boy, my daughter really has an artistic flair. I don't. I'm not sure what to do with that. Well, use your imagination. Talk to people. Figure out what you can do to assist your daughter to learn to use her artistic gift in ways that will further the kingdom, in ways that will serve others, right? So sometimes you, you don't have what they have, but boy, encourage it. Help them grow in it. Be a cheerleader. Be a director from the sidelines in helping them use Uh, the gifts that they have in in service to others as an outflowing of this. Okay, final thoughts, particularly for parents. First point is this. The principles of the progression and possession of the truth we've considered here, that is the traveling truth, right? Head, heart, hands, habitat, that we've considered here are just as relevant for us as for our children. Do we seek to know and love and live and transform by that word. And I I just think every one of us should take each one of those one at a time and think about it. How am I doing in knowing the truth that can transform? How how am I doing at making the 18-inch connection between head and heart in loving that truth? Am I praying that God would help me see more of the beauty, the, the, the splendor, the wisdom of that truth? Uh, how, how am I doing on hands-on application? Am I thinking carefully about what those truths mean that I've now embraced and how they get lived out in my life? And how am I doing on, in terms of the effect on other people around me? So think through those things yourself because they apply every bit as much to us as they do to our children. And then finally, do our children see in us a fervency and passion and love for the truth that they will want to emulate. Children often observe what is caught along with what is taught, like I did with my dad, loving those older folks in the church. So help them see your heart, see your mind, see your actions in ways that will help them emulate, want to follow this path. You follow it with all your heart and Help them see your heart, your mind, your hands at work so that they will emulate that themselves. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege we've had this morning to walk through these aspects of how you have made us and how how you have intended your truth to to affect us as, as our heads and then hearts and then hands and then habitat are affected by that truth. And dear Lord, we do pray that you would grant us wisdom in helping the next generation put their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. May we assist in seeing this more of a reality. We pray in Christ's name, amen.